Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Bierenbaum. Thanks so much for bearing with me as I took some time off in the last few weeks, but I'm so excited to be back this week. I've been teasing some good things and I promise to deliver on those teases. So my guest today was a dancer and actor performing in national tours like the 50th anniversary West Side Story Tour and at the best of the best regional theaters like Goodspeed Opera House and Houston's Theater Under the Stars before turning his focus to the academic side of theater and performance. As someone who was an English major in college and who still wrestles with some of these questions in graduate school and on my arts journal platform, as many of you know, this career move is particularly compelling to me and I imagine it will be to many of my listeners. To that end, my guest received his PhD from the Graduate Center at CUNY in Theater and Performance Studies and is currently an assistant professor at Duke University. He co-edited the March 2019 special issue of the journal Studies in Musical Theater. And most importantly, and our major topic for today, his book, Broadway Bodies, which focuses on the relationship between body politics and the casting of Broadway musicals, comes out this year, published by Oxford University Press. I couldn't be more excited he's here with me today, especially after multiple tech uh, issues we had. Without further ado, please welcome Ryan Donovan. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Happy you're drinking your Joe coffee. I want to start, I mentioned that our major topic today is your book, which we will of course get to. But I want to start with your personal introduction to musical theater, and it seems like dance was primarily your specialty, and how how you got interested in this topic in the first place. Yeah, thank you. My first memory of seeing a professional show was one of the many, many national tours of Cats that came through Washington, D.C. In the, in the mid-1980s, and in particular... I remember sitting on the aisle, I was me, I don't know, maybe I was seven years old and I was wearing a little clip on tie that my mom had got for me because back then we used to, we used to dress up to go to the theater. And during the show, the, the cats all come into the audience and one of the cats, you know, spotted this kid wearing a clip on tie and a little suit that was too big for him and came over and like butzed with it. And I was entranced, like I was hooked. And that was the moment. And, you know, Cats was the show I always wanted to do and I never did because then I, I moved to New York and I went, I actually, when I moved to New York, I went to the last open call for the Broadway production of Cats. Wow. And, I, and it was at a Broadway theater. And I mean, I, I think I made it through like five or six rounds of cuts that they did. And I got to sing, you know, 16 bars on the stage and that was my last first and last audition at a Broadway theater because soon after that they stopped doing that. But it was it was great to, you know, have that experience, even if I never got to do the show. I was gonna say, I I I feel like the only time I've heard of people lately doing auditions on the Broadway stage was famously in every little step for the chorus line revival. Yeah. Yeah, and that was just callbacks, right? And that and that now that was a long time ago. So, you know, now now everything is at Chelsea's not probably not even at Chelsea Studios anymore, but in studios. Okay, so you see cats. How old were you at this time? I was probably seven or eight. Was your family at all involved in theater? How did you go about being like, this is what I want to do? 
nobody in my family was involved in theater, but my mom and stepdad used to go to London every so often and they'd come back and tell me about the, you know, big Andrew Lloyd Webber spectacle that they had seen. And so that kind of piqued my interest. And then after I saw Cats, a few years later, I went to a friend's ballet school's production of The Nutcracker. And I, when I, again, when I saw that, I was like, that's what I want to do. And I begged to take ballet classes, but my parents said, no, people might make fun of you because back then a boy dancing was still stigmatized. And so it took a few more years until I was in high school and I came to New York and I saw Crazy for You on Broadway. Mm. And then I was like, listen, the majority of jobs are in the ensemble and I want to do this. I need to learn how to dance if I want to do this. And so then finally you know, my parents relented and I started taking tap. And I, <laughs> I think at like 15 years old, I started taking ballet with eight-year-olds. So that was <laughs> the one time in my life I was taller than everyone else in the room. It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, you got sort of like a late start, especially with like ballet training for as yeah. a dancer as you were. Did you just like go into it you know, full steam ahead, got to make up for lost time. Was that your attitude? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I persevered despite lack of turnout, lack of natural line, all the things you need to be a ballet dancer, you know, and it, maybe if I had started younger, I would have been able to muscle those things, muscle my body into developing a certain way. But I don't know, I think it, it all worked out the way it worked out. And it was... Uh, to start late, you have to really, really need to do it. And so you just find a way, you know. I've had a, a number of male dancers on the show in different capacities, some more ballet focused, some more like acrobatics focused. And many of them started late. So I feel like it's more common than than we would think. I think there's still a divide, like women are starting at like three because it's socially acceptable and men have to really want it, as you say. Yeah. Uh, you say everything worked out for the best. So you obviously, as I said in your bio, you did a bunch of shows, you did this national tour, but we also know that you made this transition into academia ultimately. Can you talk to me about why you made that transition? Yeah, I had been told a few times when I was younger that I should get a PhD but I had no idea what, what that meant. I had no concept of like what. That's not very common. Were people telling that to you because you were like always writing at the same time? What was the the vibe? I, I think I was writing and I think people knew that I loved history and that I somehow they sensed that I had the, the mind for it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the first time someone said that to me, I was I was in college at University of the Arts where I was a dance major for a year. And our kinesiology professor said it to me and I, I remembered it. And then fast forward a few years, I'm doing summer stock in upstate New York and I'm Love in the it. ensemble of, yeah, I'm in the ensemble of Brigadoon <laughs> and the actor, the actor who was playing, oh, the, I think Meg, the comic, the comic yeah. part was named Megan Duffy and Megan was getting her PhD in theater at the program to which I would ultimately go. Oh, wow. And so she she was in the midst of studying for her big 
comprehensive exams. So she was holed up in her room every night reading books. And, but she again told me, you should get a PhD. You could do this. Cause during the show, when we had like crowd business, we would run over to each other and, you know, secretly say the names of old forgotten musicals to each other as if we were <laughs> actually, you know, distressed about Harry Beaton and about to do, to destroy the secret of <laughs> I feel like part of the joy, part of the reason I fell in love with musical theater was yes, like playing the lead role, but so often you do have to be in the ensemble and the solidarity of that and those silly moments. I know you're not supposed to do it, obviously, but there I'm thinking particularly a previous guest on the show, one of my best friends who I went to Interlochen with, my friend Evan Strauss. We had this huge group scene in this one show at Interlochen and every night we would pretend that he was Stephen Sondheim and I was Bernadette Peters and we were attending this <laughs> together. So very similar vibes. Yeah. I love, I mean, I love that stuff. You're really not supposed to do it, but it, it every once in a while, it's what keeps it fresh and fun. Completely. I mean, there's obviously a point of no return. I've certainly done summer stock productions where the silliness overtakes the, the fact that it's a job and you're putting on a show, but some element of the silliness, I think is part of the fun and part of the magic. You have these people telling you, you should get a PhD it's in the back of your mind what was the deciding factor ultimately? I think what happened for me was that, you know, I was building my resume, I was getting bigger jobs and working with people at a higher level. And and then I kind of hit a ceiling and I just, and I was about to turn 30 and I thought, what else am I going to do with the rest of my life that's going to be rewarding and that I'm passionate about? And I remember that people kept telling me to get a PhD and I thought, let me look into that. And so I, I looked into it and at the time, and this has only gotten worse, there were articles telling you don't get a PhD in the humanities. There are no jobs. It's, and so I thought, I thought to myself, I don't want to recreate like my experience in theater where you train for years and then there are very few opportunities. And there, the opportunities are few and far between and you have to leave home. And so I, I put off applying to PhD programs and I applied to social work school because at the time I was a, a volunteer helpline counselor at the Trevor Project. And I loved that and it was so rewarding. So I thought, let me get a master's in social work. Well, social work school basically said, you should get a PhD in theater. So, so I applied the next year after not getting into social work school, I applied to get a to PhD programs in theater. And I got accepted at the Graduate Center, which was really my top choice. And I didn't look back. Yeah, I was that. going to ask you, just as someone kind of in academia, who's always been sort of like on the outskirts of academia looking in, you mentioned, obviously, academia is such a competitive field. There have been times in my life where people have told me to get a PhD and I've been like, maybe I should get a PhD. And my parents and I have joked that it's like coming from musical theater, maybe the most competitive field ever and going into like the second most competitive field ever. Like if you're seeking stability or security or whatever, that's not really where to go. Plus you're in the humanities, plus you're in this like very specific segment of the humanities. 
So I guess my question being, did you and do you feel the pressure of that? I certainly did during graduate school. Yeah. And uh, you really feel it the closer you are to finishing and then when you're on the job market. And it's like theater in that it's kind of a lottery. You have to be prepared if, if your number comes up and it may not, you know, and there's so many talented people with PhDs who never end up in a full-time job anywhere. It's just really tough. Now that I do have a full-time job, I'm very grateful to, to have that because it's increasingly rare. And yes, I was prepared and ready for it, but I also recognize that there's also amount of luck involved because Duke needed somebody who did what I do and I happened to be on the job market at that time. And, you know, that may not have happened, but it did. So, you know, here I am, but it, it's, it's really, it's a really uncertain process. And, you know, I was on the job market for a long time without interviews. And then all of a sudden Duke was like, oh, hey, <laughs> so uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. I think it's true. I think it's a lot like theater. I mean, it reminds me, I, I wrote this article this week this is coming out next week about every little step, as I told you, sort of in advance of our conversation. And it reminds me, one of the actresses who doesn't ultimately book the role, Natasha Diaz says like, it teaches you how to live. Not everyone has to go out there every day and say like, do you like me, choose me, whatever. But that is sort of a metaphor for life. And it depends on how competitive your field is, but I'm sure you felt prepared for the vagaries of academia because of your previous experience. I want to also ask you something we briefly spoke about when we met before was the fact that certainly when I was in college, what you focus on, you know, theater studies and even more specifically like musical theater studies felt like a very young field. Like I was learning from the great Stacey Wolf, who I consider to be sort of the mother of the field. Do you feel that it's still young? now and is that exciting for you or is that challenging i think that the field of musical theater studies is you know loosely around 20 some years and counting old and it's still exciting because there's still so much to write about you know we're not going over shakespeare for the 10,000th time right in our field i mean there there is a little bit of that with some shows like, you know, do we need oh. more on Oklahoma? I don't know, sure. <laughs> but I think it, it's exciting. And the challenge is still at many institutions, musical theater is still looked down upon even within theater studies. I mean, if I had a dollar for every person who's a faculty member in theater at a university who told me that they hate musicals, you know, I mean, I just can't, I still can't quite believe that people colleagues will say to me, oh, I hate musicals. And it's like, okay, well, I've only devoted my life to studying them and being in them. Sure. So, <laughs> you know, so it still doesn't get quite the respect in academia. I mean, it's the most popular form of theater globally. And I think that that popularity has made it kind of suspect within the academy, but that's, that's slowly changing. And I will say, you know, hats off to to places like Princeton and like Duke and elsewhere that 
that value musical theater studies and and a, the scholars who do it. I think that's so true. Popularity of it is why sort of the ivory tower tends to look down on it. Like everyone wants to say that they write about like Brechtian whatever and you know high Elizabethan drama and then therefore look down on you know Rogers and Hammerstein but why can't we do both I I I don't even do what you do and I've been in so many situations where theater academics or directors or producers who consider themselves the smartest the top of the top will be like oh god musical theater and just like poo-poo it it's crazy yeah and you know I think that musical theater is so fascinating to study because you need to know a little bit about a lot of things you have to be able to talk about music you have to be able to talk about dance you have to be able to talk about dramaturgy act you know all of the elements of theater come into play in a musical and I think that's why it's compelling and I know that that's also why it turns some people off because they they hate when people burst into song and dance. So, you know, that's fair. And I don't, if you don't like it, I'm not going to waste energy trying to convince you of its worth because life is too short for that. You know, I'd rather preach to the converted. You're talking to the converted here because I've always considered it like Wagner's concept of Gesamtkunstwerk. It's, it's everything. It's all forms of art. And that's why it's so compelling to me and to you. I want to get to your book because it's super exciting. And I loved reading it. In your book, you reference so many musicals, but you focus specifically on a couple, on a chorus line, Dreamgirls, Lacage, Deaf West Spring Awakening are sort of the talismans. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you focused on each of those? The book is, is it's my first book. And so it's my dissertation, but expanded and revised and fleshed out. And when I was thinking about how to write the dissertation, I mean, I guess I should backtrack. When I got to graduate school, I had no idea that I could even write about musicals. I thought I was going to have to do something, you know, more highbrow. And so I was quickly hey, disabused of that notion. Musical theater is highbrow. Come on. Yeah. So I thought I was going to have to do something different. And then once I learned that I could do this, I, you know, I read all the books. I you know, immersed myself in that world, and I thought, what, what, what's the book that I want to read? Because that's what I should write. And could I write that draws upon my experience as a performer and the knowledge that I gained as as one and you know, I've been so fascinated by casting for decades now. And so that was where I first, where I first had the idea for a dissertation, which became the book. And then I was, uh, you know, casting is, it's inherently a discriminatory process. There's always only going to be one person that gets the role, maybe two, if there's some kind of sharing situation. But you know, it all comes down to so many intangible factors. But I knew from being a performer that, as I said, it's openly discriminatory and it's so often based upon appearance. And, you know, before you can even open your mouth, you could be typed out, you know, before you even get the chance to move, you could be typed out. So 
I started there and then I started thinking about how, you know, Broadway discriminates based upon how you look, but also how you move and how you sound. And so, you know, that's how I kind of got to those three shows. And so, you know, each of those shows is the case study in a section. Dreamgirls is the case study in the books section on size and casting. La Cage is about sexuality and casting. And then Deaf West Spring Awakening is about disability and physical difference, that section and deafness, of course. So as an academic, I got interested in all of the different fields, the academic fields that map onto those. So I was really interested in fat studies, LGBTQ studies, and deaf studies and disability studies, and the overlaps, the differences, the intersections among all of those. And I just saw that there was this, this thread that weaves through my mind about how Broadway treats all of these non-conforming bodies with a lot of ambivalence and doesn't, even when they're included, doesn't really know what to do. And so that's how I settled on those shows. And also, you know, I wanted shows that I, that had a record that I could really dig yeah. into. So, you know, documents in the archive, people I could interview, productions I could watch, you know, so it began there, but then, you know, in their way, they each represent a different kind of first. Dreamgirls was the first Broadway musical to cast a plus-size Black woman as the romantic lead since 1970. The book covers 1970 to 2020. La Cage was the first Broadway musical to have a gay couple as its romantic leads. And Deaf West Spring Awakening was the first to cast an actor who uses a wheelchair. It was the second to cast a cast comprised of so many deaf or hard of hearing actors. Although actually, you know, there's, you know, there's more of a history there than in, than just it's the second, but which I go into in the book a bit. So I was interested in, in you know, those kind of landmark productions. And then in the chapters that come after each of those, I look at how Broadway on a, on a larger scale, how Broadway has included those identities in, in narratives and other shows. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that's, you just put your thesis on a nice little platter. That's <laughs> fantastic. You're ready for the book tour. Yes. I, I noticed, I think in your acknowledgements or your epilogue, you talked about how you have without really knowing it, been thinking about casting since you were working as an actor. And I think that's really true. It's something we thought about. And another thing you said, I think in your intro about casting, which I think the average person who's who's not going into the audition room every day may not really realize, which is that because of the aesthetic nature of theater, casting seems to break so many laws. <laughs> like the legalities of casting are really fuzzy and sort of exist in this legal penumbra. I'm sure you have stories. I have stories too. In no other work context would you be able to say like, oh, she's not pretty enough for the role. She's not, I. she's too sexy for the role, whatever it is. And I think that was that was such an interesting aspect of your book. On that subject, before we get into the weeds of sort of these shows and some of your ideas, I guess I'm curious where you come down on that concept. Like the reality is theater is aesthetic and you are looking at people up on a stage. So how do you 
see casting or want casting to change based on this research that you've done? I think that there there will always be some degree of creative license involved in casting. I mean, there has to be. Theater depends upon that kind of alchemy that happens when you put certain people together on stage. It's always gonna be a matter of taste of the director, the choreographer, the casting director. I don't think that's gonna change. But what I think probably should change is, is who they're bringing into the room in the first place. You know, I, I actually, as, as part of writing this book, in the epilogue, I wrote about this production of Beauty and the Beast at the Olney Theater Center in Maryland that was directed by Marsha Milgram Dodge. And it just played the last two winter seasons there. And I, I went to see it and it was notable because it cast a plus size queer black woman as Belle and a guy whose part of his leg was amputated as the Beast. And, you know, it got so much attention. It was in People Magazine, it got, you know, stories everywhere. And what was so exciting about it was, you know, yes, that these people were, these actors were getting opportunities that they never had gotten before, but also was what was amazing was just how normal it is when you see inclusive casting like that, that the audience goes with it because we're there to be entertained, to be moved, to be told a story. And you know, I, my wish is that there would be more casting like that in the industry. That's what I would like to see that Broadway producers in particular are willing to take a chance on breaking the mold of what, what romantic leads should look like. Because I think we're, you know, it's been the practice for decades that, you know, romantic leads have a certain body type and then the secondary comic characters, there's a little more leeway for them. And, you know, it would be nice to get to see some of those performers who are always cast in those supporting or comic parts to get to play the full range of humanity that, you know, is currently not always on offer to them. Yeah, I think that's really true. As someone who's devoted so much time and research to this topic, what do you say to the rejoinder that I'm sure you've heard many times of people being like, well, casting should just hire the best people for the role or like it's called acting how do you respond to critics who are sort of scared of of widening the breadth of casting you know the way i think about it is that in an ideal world and we're far from an ideal world but in an ideal world all casting would be flexible and everybody could play everything because sure it is called acting and yet like that's not the world that we inhabit and people are routinely denied opportunities because they are disabled, because they, you know, quote unquote, sound gay, or you need to butch it up. Like I was told so many times at auditions, you know, at dance auditions, butch it up. The choreographer would say that to the whole room. Ugh. You know, people are denied roles because of the size of their body. And so, you know, we're still, we're still really thick in that place right now. And until we get out of that, I think that we do have to address casting really from a point of equity, you know, that who, who even gets to play roles that somewhat align with their identity right now, because, if you, you know, for instance, in the last section of the book, I read a lot about 
characters that are disabled who have historically been played by non-disabled actors and who often win awards for, for playing those parts. Yeah. And you know, the practice of of wearing padding, aka fat suits, is still pervasive in the industry. So, you know, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, yes, acting is acting, but we're so far from that. Totally. I I mean, I completely agree. I loved your section in Dream Girls and talking about hairspray, talking about like padding and fat suits because it immediately brought me back. I honestly had like blocked it out, I think, but in middle school, I was in a production of HMS Pinafore and they put me in a fat suit to play Buttercup, which I thought at the time I was sort of like, okay, like I, I get it, but I kind of can't believe that was happening in like 2008. Yeah. It's wild. I assume, it, first of all, is it your impression that fat suits and padding are out in the industry or do you think it still happens? I don't really know. And then I assume your perspective is like, we should not be using that. I think that they're still, they're still being used for sure in certain in certain shows like hairspray's on tour right now it's the same production as the broadway production i don't know for sure but i presume they are still using them i guess i'm kind of on the fence like i i'm not going to say never yeah uh, i try to avoid all, i try to avoid always and never in my vocabulary but so i don't want to say never but i guess in a in a show like hairspray you know, looking back at the history of that and what they did to all of the actors who played Tracy Turnblad, where they were, you know, constantly monitoring their weight and, you know, literally feeding Marissa Jarrett Winokur milkshakes and candy before the I show opened on Broadway. That section. And then still making her wear padding. I, I, you know, it, it's really complicated. And yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking also about the, the, recent film of the play The Whale that, that stars Brandon Frazier and you know the way that the discourse around that and his use of the fat suit and I think when we get into this kind of language about size where it's like the you know they only cast a thin actor who puts on the fat suit and then gives interviews where they talk about like finding the humanity within that person I think that's where it gets troubling. And it's you know, similar so. when you were talking about the ability and different levels of ability on stage. It's such a trope culturally, like there's some joke in I think the movie Tropic Blunder about how when you want to win an Oscar, you play someone who is disabled. And in that section too, you talk a lot about, I didn't really put this together before reading your book. So kudos to you how many roles there actually are in musical theater about someone who has different abilities and the ways that so often those abilities are countered by extraordinary abilities in some other way, like as if the universe is sort of tit-for-tatting ability. Do you think that's unique to musical theater or do you think that's sort of a cultural truism? I mean, that is such a, a common trope about disability that there's some kind of magical power of compensation, right? I yeah. mean, we, it, it even goes all the way back to 
Greek mythology. Yeah. If you, you know, if you think about Tiresias, the, the, the seer who's, you know, paradoxically blind. So, you know, we have these longstanding cultural tropes about disability that I think we see in all representation. And actually your question was making me think of, about how so many actors also, so, how so many straight actors win awards for playing queer characters. Yes. I mean, look at the history of the Oscars. I mean, you've got Tom Hanks winning for Philadelphia. What's this? Sean Penn as Harvey Milk. Now there's also the, that probably the tough. truth that those, those films wouldn't have been made without those straight movie stars at that time, because it wasn't, it wasn't possible for gay actors to be out at that time and still have a career at that level. I think now it's shifted, but you know, that's a recent development of the last decade. I was going to ask if you think things have changed in that way, like in your section on Lacage, you talk about, I forget which actor it is. I think George Hearn who did, I am what I am on the Tonys in a tux rather than drag that it's done in the show. Such a strange choice. I don't think that would happen today, but do you think things have changed all that much? I mean, I was thinking when I thought about that question, particularly about the controversy surrounding like the inheritance, where I think all of the leads were played by men who were identified as heterosexual in real life. I guess I'm just curious, particularly when it comes to sexuality, whether you think things have changed all that much. I think that they definitely have for a lot of people, but that those changes haven't been evenly realized. So for a lot of actors, they still feel that they can't come out Actually, one of the leads of The Inheritance came out after being in The Inheritance. Oh, I didn't know that. So, yeah. And I don't know, like, I think what was interesting and challenging for me about writing this book was that all of the identities that I write about are hard to actually define. And it's kind of like, do you know it when you see it? That that, that kind of question. Because like, what what is fat? What is disabled? What is queer? And, you know, so, and certainly with sexuality, it's, you know, culturally, we've definitely moved to this understanding of, of sexuality on a, on a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that because sexuality is on a spectrum, people are fluid and they might, you know, evolve certain ways over the course of their life. So, you know, I think that we all need to just remain open towards that and so I guess I I'm maybe a little less rigid about that in certain aspects but again I do go back to this this question of who gets to play whom and who you know I I do think that queer actors should be considered first for queer roles ultimately but maybe that's more of my personal opinion than my scholarly opinion but I I, I think, as I said before, until we have more parity, you know, that marginalized groups should be should be considered first for for roles that you know they identify with. Well, it gets into this really muddy area that you bring up as to like what you can see versus what you can can't. Right. Thinking about sexuality, 
of course, there are instances where people think like, oh, you were told butch it up, whatever. So I guess there's an understanding there that people could make a judgment about your sexuality. But of course, regardless of the leeway that casting has in the theater, it is illegal to go into an audition and be like, hey, are you gay? Which yeah. if you're trying to cast queer people in a queer role, you would want to do that, but then you can't ask. It just gets into such a a thorny area about what people acknowledge about each other. Yeah, it's really complicated. And I know when I was working on the book and the proposal went out to peer reviewers as academic books do, there was some pushback about including the section on sexuality. And I really thought about it. And the person who gave that feedback, I think probably was not part of the queer community in a way, because I think that being queer, there's a way that you police your body in public and you're very aware, you know, if you don't pass as straight, you're very aware of what you do with your body and how you move and how you sound. And so for me, um, it's very visceral and all of that comes into the casting process for actors, whether you are told to like turn that up if you're going in for certain roles or turn it down if you're going in to play, you know, audition for a straight role. So I, I was also always interested that I never got pushback on what is fat, what is disabled, that people had very clear ideas about that. But the to bring up sexuality, people, there was a little bit of rigidity. There is a little bit of rigidity about that still among some folks. So, you know, gay, straight, queer, bi, whatever, we all get really fixed on these identities in a way. And so part of the book is interested in, in questioning that rigidity while also, you know, noting that the Broadway industry hasn't always been so careful when it's casting these marginalized identities. So there's yeah. definitely a tension there. Totally. And all of this, like, what can you see versus what can you not see? On the subject of this sense you had that people automatically knew what fat was or what disabled was I loved in this section about dream girls and hairspray your discussions of casting breakdowns because I've always been really interested as a writer and as an actor in how they're written and the word choices and I thought it was so interesting the way you explored the sort of hemming and hawing about like is Effie described as fat it should, all these like weird euphemisms that casting has used like big boned, chubby, whatever it is. And I've always yeah, been, yeah. as someone looking at breakdowns, I've always been sort of like insulted, not even for myself, but insulted in looking at these like weird euphemisms for different body types that casting uses. And I'm just curious if through your research, do you have a sense that there's like an industry standard now, or is it just like a free for all? And it's like, Anyone can say whatever they want about body type. I, I mean, I just don't know. One of the most fun parts about writing the book was actually getting to talk to casting directors and hear their point of view on this. And as a former performer, it was kind of reparative to actually get to talk to them outside of the audition space. Totally. But, but one thing that I, I took away from that was really that everyone is trying their best and you know, when they're thinking about how to write breakdowns, they're trying to cast the widest net to bring in the most performers that fit the description as possible. So 
I know, for instance, when I was talking to the casting director for Hairspray, you know, he said it was his most joyous experience casting that show out of his whole career, but also that he felt like he had to use the euphemisms because I think to, to say the word fat is still, you know, forbidden almost. It's because fat is so stigmatized in our culture. And so, you know, he really didn't want to to foreclose the possibility of other people showing up. And I think also if you say fat, that means something different to every different person almost. Actually in the book, I write about how one of the women that played Tracy Turnblad thought she was too skinny at first and didn't think she was going to book it. And then she did. And, you know, of course she wore padding, but yeah, I don't think there's an an industry standard for language and it is on a show by show basis. And I, yeah, I think, but I also think it's really interesting to see how the language used in breaktowns changes over time. For instance, with Dreamgirls, when they were casting the London production from a few years ago, they, they consciously avoided all mention of size. But what they found was that when they would call certain people in, the actress would say, why are you calling me in for Effie? I'm not fat. You know, and so, you know, there was still this association with that part. So I'm very interested in those changes in the industry, because looking back at it, it's clear that initially they did consider Effie to be a plus size character, and then they changed their mind. And then they, you know, kind of lied to the press about that. And what I found in doing the research was the earliest versions of the show, the breakdown for that actually did, you know, say Effie was, you know, I think the language was that she should be big, but still pretty or something like that, as if those are, you know, mutually exclusive, which of course they're not. Yeah. The language now, even though we consider it bad in some respects, the language in the past... uh, and I can't even imagine pre-1970 what breakdown said. You, your point about this character, Effie, sort of gaining importance, like separate from the show, so much so that people who were auditioning later were saying, you know, like, isn't the role supposed to be this way? Reminds me of your discussion of a chorus line. And the most interesting part of your discussion to me was the fact that you know the whole point of the original show was supposed to be a peek behind the curtain of the Broadway process and casting is included in that and therefore the actors were playing themselves and certainly that was a a lot of freedom for them and b like some of the first opportunities that people got to see as you detail in the book queer people on stage people of different ethnicities, people of different sizes and body types. And yet you talk about how because of those very specific types, future productions, current productions of the show, ironically, often pigeonhole auditioning actors more than, say, a carousel or an Oklahoma. Can you talk about, do you think there's any way for someone doing a chorus line today to avoid that? and like get the original spirit of the show. Well, I think if you're if you're asking Bayark Lee, for instance, to stage the original production for you, you're gonna get, rightfully so, I think you're gonna get what 
that production was as much as can be recreated. And, you know, in talking to Bayor, she was so generous to talk to me and she really complicated my argument about the show because she said, you know, when I cast the show and I cast people who look like the original cast, it's because I'm paying tribute to my co-creators of the show. And so, you know, looking at it in that spirit, I don't feel that it's such a, a negative thing. And yet I think the show was supposed to individuate dancers, but because it became so successful and it became its own industry, it needed to be replicable. And so the way that they did that in part was by casting actors that fit the costume of the original person, you know, so to speak. And, you know, the, the show ran so long and spawned so many companies around the world that, you know, it gave a lot of people jobs. And so I certainly don't begrudge that at all. I think that's amazing. And yet I have seen productions that don't use the original choreography and staging. And it's just not the same, I, I hate to say, but I think it, more than almost any other show, the staging of a chorus line is an integral part of the text of that show. It, it just doesn't have the same impact without that Michael Bennett and Bob Avian staging. Now, I think within that staging, they could they could cast a little less rigidly. In the last major production, Bjork and Bob Avian were flexible with some of the casting and it made it exciting. So, you know, it's a living document still. Yeah, I think that line between like tribute to how meaningful the original production was and allowing for casting to be equitable and free and creative as you sort of want the industry to be is blurry when it comes to something like a chorus line. And I imagine when people start reviving like Hamilton or things like, or Rent even in the future, so shows that were revolutionary in terms of their casting when they initially came out, but therefore pretty specific in terms of like, this person was originally played by this type of person. And I'm curious to see how, I mean, I guess Rent is, is in the ether now, so you can study that, but I'm curious to see how they will be cast in the future. Yeah. And when we, when we get non-replica productions, you know, directed by someone other than, for instance, Michael Greif and, and his production of Rent, I think that'll be the test. Totally. On that subject of future, I sort of asked you this when it comes to like casting queer roles, but your book, as you discussed, and as we have discussed, deals with so many different intersectional identities and the way those identities intersect and, and relate on stage. Do you feel that Broadway in general, when it comes to all of these different identities, is moving in a good direction? Or do you feel that it's regressing? And I'm thinking, for example, Strange Loop recently closed, which I think represented so many different intersectional identities on stage and won the Tony and won the Pulitzer. And I think people were, some people were surprised to hear that it had closed. So I'm curious for your thoughts on, on trends upcoming. I think is is becoming more inclusive. I think success of a show like A Strange Sloop demonstrates. Michael 
R. Jackson gave this really amazing interview to Playbill recently. And he also spoke to the New York Times and just said, listen, like this, the fact that the show lasted as long as it did on Broadway is makes it a success to me. And yeah, um, that, you know, everybody was working in so hard to make it run. And so, you know, on that note, I do think Broadway is becoming more inclusive. And I also think that theater is really slow. It's a slow art form, unlike TV, where you can really be topical and nimble. Theater takes so long to produce and to to get something from the page to the stage can take years. We're not talking like weeks, like TV it takes years to develop a show. So it's hard for theater to respond quickly in that sense. Casting, however, is one way they could do that. You know, when the show is taking years, you have years to plan, right? So, you know, it, it's kind of a, a yes and situation. Yes, it takes years and we could still cast more inclusively in in what we've been working on for years. So I think it's, both things are true. You know, you can, it's what you see, like you go to theater, you can see that it is becoming more inclusive, like ensembles, for instance, are not all homogenous any longer. So, you know, that's one place I'm seeing change, certainly in shows like A Strange Loop, some like It Hot and Juliet, you know, we're, I think we're at a, we are at a pivot point. Yeah, I agree. First of all, your point about how long it takes for a show to go from page to stage. I don't know if the average person is really aware, but it's like five years or more for a musical. Yeah. You're right that casting, and I don't think people associate casting often with creativity, but it really does have the opportunity. And I think your book hit that home for me to be creative and to think outside of the box while still being, you know, realistic and we're putting on a show. And that was something I loved about your book, which I think I mentioned to you when we met before, which was that throughout you make some very valid critiques of the way that industry functions and the way shows have been cast in the past and today. But I still sensed this like real pulsing, beating heart love for the industry. So I guess one of my last questions, do you still believe in musical theater? I sure do, but it's definitely, it's it's a conditional love at this point in my life, I think. It's not unconditional. And I think maybe that's a better kind of love. I, actually, like I think all love is conditional, <laughs> but all true love is conditional maybe. But I think I still believe in it because I still, you know, I, I actually went to see A Strange Loop again before it closed. And you know, it, it's just thrilling to see something like that on stage, to see a show that's so audacious and so vulnerable and so moving. And you got a, a full experience of of another person's humanity at that show. So the more I can get that experience, the more I believe in musical theater still. Now, when I go to see something that doesn't work, I'll be the first to say, oh, I want to leave it intermission. <laughs> but when it works, for me, there's still nothing like it. A full circle moment, we started this conversation talking about your transition into academia from performance and on the subject of loving musical theater. I know that something that I have struggled with as I've sort of like worn different hats and sometimes pivoted away from performance is this like fear that doing something else in the industry means that I don't love it in the same way or that I'm not really doing it in the same way. 
Do you struggle <laughs> with that ever? And do you feel that your new career or your career now has has deepened that love or changed your relationship to theater in any way? What do you think about that? Well, I think it's really nice where I am now to not be a part of it on the inside, but to be looking from the outside in and to look back and and recognize you know, what it meant to be a part of it to me then and that I no longer need to be a part of it in the way that I used to. And when that need went away was when I realized I need to do something else. <laughs> and so I guess it's just a process that takes time when you're shifting around on different sides within the industry. So yeah, I think, I think I'm really happy where I'm at now. I'm happy I did what I did. It's a really cutthroat bruising and really fun and can be very supportive and joyful industry, but it's a tough, tough business. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're on the outside looking in or do you still feel like you're in? I, I guess I'm a little bit insider outsider at this point, but you know, I'm inside only in that, like I'm, I'm researching and writing about it. I'm, and, you know, going to things, but I'm, I'm definitely not, I don't consider myself really part of the industry anymore in the way that I used to. Hmm. I mean, I'm still, I would say I'm still connected, but maybe not part of, <laughs> I think that's also part of the thing about being a scholar is that like, I'm no longer just a fan. And, you know, so my relationship is, is a little more complicated now than it used to be. That and, and also in other ways, simpler. <laughs> yeah, necessarily. I think I want to end with my ending segment, which I call the thank you five segment. So it's five rapid fire questions, some favorites, which I know people don't love. So you can always give a couple. I had a lot of fun drafting these and I think there's a bonus one in there. I'm going to ask you to. So just the first thing off the top of your head today, Ryan, top five musicals of all time. Top five musicals, Gypsy, A Chorus Line, Dream Girls, West Side Story, and Company. Really great choices. Two Michael Bennett make make it in there. I love that. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about casting today. What is one tangible thing you'd change about the casting process for Broadway musicals today? Like if you could snap your fingers. Today I would, and I think this is already in the works, but, but I would make them stop doing virtual auditions. Theater's about being in the room with people and the feeling you get from the liveness. And so YouTube and Zoom and self-tapes do away with all of it. I completely agree. There's nothing worse than doing like like a funny girl self-tape in your apartment. They're not going to be able to see anything based on that. Yeah. You are a writer and you wrote this dissertation that became a book. Do you have a favorite time of day to write? First thing in the morning. I'm the same way. Love it. I'm sure you don't want to be thinking about this. If you were to write another book, what do you think it would be about? I'm, I'm in early stages of this right now, but what I'm thinking about is musical theater performance in the 1970s and how that, that era redefined what virtuosity in musical theater performance meant. Cool. I so would stay tuned. <laughs> we'll definitely stay tuned, but 
first, everyone has to read your first book. My last question, I ask almost everyone a version of this question, but you are one of the first, I had Stacy early on in the show on, but you're one of the first sort of theater academics I've had or theorists on the show. And so I want to ask, what is a theater academics essential? And so this could be interpreted literally like your laptop or a library card, or it could be like curiosity or something like that. Yeah, I think that the essential thing is passion. And I'm stealing that from my advisor in, in grad school, because he told us at one point this, you have to have passion to do this. It's a hard thing to do. And I do think the, the passion for what you're curious about is what gets you up in the morning and, and makes you write because you want to figure out what you think by writing and that's exciting. And so it, it does take passion to get up and, and do that. Really true. And we are conversation about how competitive the field is. It's like theater in that, like, if you don't love it, you're, you shouldn't do it. Like <laughs> there's nothing else that's going to. Absolutely. Happen. Yeah. It's been such an amazing discussion. Clearly I could talk to you in circles about all of these shows and topics for hours and hours, but you have a life. Is there anything else you want to say on this platform? Anything you feel like I've missed or want to mention about the book? Oh, gosh, I would love people to read the book and let me know what they think. And, you know, the book is meant to be a conversation starter and to to dive into some uncomfortable questions about casting and identity. And I would love to hear what people's responses once it's out. Great. I'm going to encourage all of my listeners and readers to read Broadway Bodies. When is it available to the public? It's going to be available on February 10th. So soon. Yeah, yeah. Are you having a big party? It's in the works. I haven't planned it yet, but I, I definitely want to do something to celebrate. You should. You deserve it. Oxford University Press, February 10th. It was a great read. And, you know, I have to say, like, when your agent sent it over and I, I actually printed it, which was a mistake, but <laughs> I printed it and it's really big. And I was a little like, Ugh. but to anyone looking at the book, it went by like that, especially if you're a musical theater fan and you're versed in everything, you're going to devour it like candy. So thank you so much, Ryan, for being on the show. Thank you, Call Time listeners. Like Ryan said, please let me know in the comments if you have thoughts on this episode or thoughts on his book. I love talking in depth about all of these issues and have a great week.